So uh, this past week, our family watched this uh, animated Christmas special called uh, Claws. I think it just came out this year, and uh, it's like this new hot take on the Santa origin story. It was a lot of fun, this mailman that gets banished to this northern community, super north, um, you know, and, and, and he, he, he conceives of the letters to Santa, and it, it, this whole thing starts to unfold. It's a lot of fun, and it gets to one point where he's explaining to the children that, you know, because they're, they're picking on the mailman, so he uses that as the opportunity to uh, conjure up the idea of the naughty list. And so as he starts explaining to these children that Santa has a naughty list, um, and he starts, you know, he, he, he's on the fly just spitballing how the naughty list works. Now, how, you, you just see the shock and awe on the kids' faces as he starts explaining this. It was pretty funny. And, of course, none of, nobody really knows how the naughty list worked and how Santa knew until 2004 when the elf on the shelf came on the scene. It's like, okay, he's doing recon. This is how it's happening. Um, there's elves in all of our homes. And uh, so anyways, it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was an endearing, you know, kind of endearing story. It was a lot of fun. And when you think about this uh, concept of the naughty list, the, the nice list, the, um, the elf on the shelf, I grew up in the church with an idea that um, God related to me like a cosmic Santa. The idea that he sees me when I'm sleeping, he knows when I'm awake, he knows if I've been bad or good, so I better be good for goodness sake. And that was the filter which I really understood God for a really long time. And it wasn't until really about 2010 when through various voices and faithful preachers preaching Christ and the goodness of his grace that I began to see that actually this is not the lens that I ought to have for, for God at all. This is not the lens I ought to have for my obedience. And it was radically recalibrating. And when we come to uh, the text, what we find is, and particularly for those of you who may be here today um, exploring Christian faith, new to church, new to the scriptures, that the narrative that we get in the scripture is not that, uh, you know, God loves the people that are on the nice list, so get on it. Actually, the narrative scripture reveals, right since the fall in Genesis, that all of us are actually born onto the naughty list. That after our first parents sinned in the garden and used their free will for treason, the rest of us were born in a state of not wanting God, but essentially wanting to be God or elevate something else, a little thing to be God. And so we're all essentially born under the naughty list. And when I say naughty list, I don't mean that we can somehow reduce sin to a list of things that we ought not to do. Because, again, the biblical narrative is that sin is not an action simply that you do or that you don't do. Sin is a condition, a condition that we are born into. A condition that needs remedy, a condition that needs saving. And so the core of Christianity, the core of the Christmas message, the core of the Advent season is this, that in a shocking and glorious contradiction of what we all deserve, God comes to us in this act of relentless love. He humiliates himself by wrapping himself in flesh and coming uh, in, a, in the form of a man, He coming... Uh, the babe in the manger is Jesus that first Christmas day. And he comes, not for those on the nice list, he comes for everybody on the naughty list, which of course is all of us. Today's reading is from Isaiah 59. And before I read it, I'll just give you some background. This is a prophecy that is 700 years before uh, Christ was born that day in Bethlehem. 
And this prophecy, it really shines like a, like a lighthouse through a storm. It's very bright in the darkness. This prophecy is given at, given at an utterly dark and hopeless time. <clears throat> the children of God have turned from God. They've turned to other gods. They've adopted the ideologies of the culture. They've adopted um, the uh, practices of the culture. And so now they're swept away into captivity by the nation of Babylon. And right in the middle of this self-induced, sinful freefall into oppression and darkness, right in the midst of that spiral, God promises to bring hope and redemption. <clears throat> Isaiah 59, starting in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save you, or his ear dull that it cannot hear you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one calls for justice. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and they give birth to iniquity. They hatch serpent's eggs and they weave the spider's web. And he who eats their eggs dies. And from the one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. And the spider webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one able to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld them. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put garments of vengeance on for clothing, and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come from Zion to those who in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. Now this passage starts out super dark. It's a prophecy. It's written, obviously, in the poetic genre. And it's super dark. And then it ends super light. This hopeless tone ends in a hopeful, hopeful sound. <clears throat> it acknowledges the pain and the tears of the present, and it foreshadows inevitable redemption in the future. And, you know, that is the story of our Christian lives. That is why, during this Advent season... For those of you um, new to, newer to church, the word Advent, it means arrival. So for those, in this Advent season, we are celebrating the arrival of that light. We are celebrating the arrival of that hope that came in the midst of darkness. And as we look back through the quarters of time to when Christ came the first time, it is, builds that hopeful certainty in us as we look at the darkness of the world around us today that Christ will come again. This is the purpose 
of uh, historically the church taking time to celebrate Advent, to, to look deeply into that darkness. You know, Advent historically for the church <clears throat> was a time where um, there would be that acknowledgement of the darkness. And it's, we do that, of course, looking on this side of the cross at this prophecy, at how Christ had come to fulfill it, how he came that first Christmas day. But we think about this present darkness that still plagues the world today. And we look at it very thoughtfully, recognizing that it is in the acknowledgement of darkness, uh, which is like a black cloth that shows off the brilliance and the clarity of the diamond that is God's grace. But if the only way you can have joy, not just in the Christmas season, but any season, if the only way you can have joy is to bracket out the darkness and not think about the darkness. So let's just think happy thoughts. Let's just sing Frosty the Snowman. Let's just make sure that the tone is always up, 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 because after all, that's how we have joy. If the only way you can have joy is by bracketing out the darkness, that joy is fragile and temporal, constantly threatened. Uh, that joy is um, short-lived and trivial. But Christian faith is the ability to not bracket out the darkness at all, but to look directly at the pain and the wreckage and the darkness and still have a pervasive sense of hope because of this Christ who came into the world who will come again. And so um, just this past week, the New York Times had an, an, an opinion article written by <coughs> an author and uh, Anglican priest named Tish Warren. And she writes this, To practice Advent is to lean into the almost cosmic ache our deep, wordless desire for the things to be made right and the incompleteness that we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, and darkness. In one way or another, we're not only wounded by the evil of the world, but we're also wielders of it, contributing in our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. Life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless, mandatory celebration, it leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier because many of us suffer from holiday blues. And I wonder if whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity we can perfect our lives and perfect the world. I'm all for happiness, joy, eggnog, corny sweaters and parties. But to rush into Christmas without first taking the time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow in the world and in our own lives, it seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. With thoughtful words. As we reflect on the tone of this prophecy here in Isaiah 59, <coughs> we're going to look at what it teaches us, and we're going to be encouraged by this. Because the beginning of the prophecy is pretty hard to read. <laughs> There's a diagnosis of hopelessness. But the end of the prophecy, it invites us to exhale. Because God meets his diagnosis with deliverance. So the three things we want to look at this morning from this text are firstly, the diagnosis, secondly, the deliverance, and then thirdly, the call to turn. So first, look at the diagnosis, God's diagnosis. He diagnoses us as hopeless without him. In verse 1, it starts out by saying that his hand is not shortened, it cannot save. That's actually an answer to an accusation. The accusation is your hand is short and you can't save. That's what the people are crying and mumbling. So he starts out by answering the accusation. They're all crying and, and you know, yelling, as many of us have yelled to the heavens, where are you, God? What are you doing, God? I don't understand what's happening, God. They're all crying out. And there's a pattern that you find in the children of God who turn from God. You find it all through the Old Testament, and if you're careful, you'll be able to see it in your own heart and your own life. Here's the pattern. We question God's wisdom. 
We question God's goodness, we question God's presence, and then we turn away. That's what they did. That's what led them to where they that's what led them to their bondage. That's what leads us to our bondage. And you find this pattern right from Genesis 3, right from the fall of man. <coughs> the temptation is to question God's wisdom. Did God really say that? And then to question God's goodness. Well, if he did really say that, is he really good? Question his wisdom, question his goodness, question the need for his presence, turn away. That's been the pattern from the beginning. And when you think about it, there's scandalous grace here. Because how many of you and I continually turn toward and run after the people that hurt us? We don't do that very often. We often shield ourselves from, from those that hurt us, those that vindictively hurt us. We shield our hearts, we protect our hearts. What God did is he constantly and relentlessly moved towards those who rejected him and hurt him. I think that, you know, it's like a classic human trope. Uh, first we deny God, then we play God, then we wreak havoc in our lives, trying to be God, and then we shake our fists at God and say, where are you, God? We've been doing that for a long time, and thankfully, in God's great grace, he keeps moving towards us uh, in our hurt and in our pain. And I really think that as I read through the first few verses of this prophecy, the wonder of the first Christmas is that there was a first Christmas, (coughs) that he bothered to come and save us. It's tremendous. It's otherworldly grace. Look at the imagery of the soul that rejects its maker in verse 5. This poetic imagery of the soul eating snake eggs, dying, a viper comes out of your dead corpse. Wow. Clothed in cobwebs, look at verse 6. You can't clothe yourself in your works, the cobwebs of your works. It reads like the third act of a Tim Burton situation. It's like Nightmare Before Christmas. And... It's dark, but what's going on? What's with all this imagery? Well, what's going on is absolutely everything that God did has been undone by, 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 uh, in the lives of, these, uh, of Israel by their disobedience. There's no walls in Jerusalem, so the work of Nehemiah is undone. They're not keeping the law. The work of Moses is undone. The temple's destroyed. Babylon destroyed the temple. The work of Solomon is undone. Right? They're, they're not a nation anymore. The work of of Abraham is undone. Absolutely, there's no king on the throne. The work of David is undone. Absolutely everything that all the patriarchs did, by God's grace, it's all been undone. It's been flattened. And here they are, being marched into Babylon, where it's carved into all the stones to the glory of Marduk. And uh, they're wondering where God is. And you know, God uses this hard time, this tragic time, as an uncomfortable tool and, you know, God uses the hard times in our lives as, these, as an uncomfortable tool to draw us back to the rest that is found in his grace, to draw us back to him. He's never far in our suffering. He's always with us in our suffering. This, this text attests to that, as do many others. We often have this naivety about God, you know, permitting hard times or being, at, you know, we're going through a hard time and we think that it means that he's absent in our lives. But, you know, if you have a toddler... And the toddler keeps reaching up with a fork to stick it in a life socket. (coughs) And they relentlessly do that. At some point, you're going to put that toddler in a playpen. And then when you put put them in their little baby jail, they're going to scream and shriek and freak out like you've just done this cosmic injustice. But you're actually saving their life. And that's kind of Isaiah 59 and kind of the entire Old Testament and kind of God's work in the hard and difficult dark and sorrowful moments of our lives is that he is able to use those things 
to draw us to the safety of his grace. So he diagnoses them as absolutely hopeless without him. And that diagnosis is true of us without him. And he's using it because he's wanting to pry their little mini-gods out of their hands. I don't know if you've ever had to take... Many of you parents have had the pleasure of this, but some of you who don't have children may have not had the pleasure of having to take a sliver out of the finger of a small child. But it's like when you've got to take the sliver out of a little kid's hand, you almost feel like you got to, you're obligated to knock on your neighbor's doors and be like, listen, I'm about to take a sliver out of my kid's hand. Please do not call the police. There's going to be a lot of screaming, <laughs> but I just, I'm just, this is a preemptive warning. And, and, and if you've ever had to do that, it's like torture. And, you know, God is trying to pry the little mini messiahs out of their hands and turn them back to him so that they can actually find life and so that he can actually heal their hearts. And the same is true of us. <coughs> and it seemed like God had totally abandoned his people in their suffering. But he was actually saving them through suffering. And maybe you're suffering right now. And when you go outside or you're in the car and you listen to the radio and you somewhere and you just hear, Now hear the sleigh bells, but you just want to punch someone right in the face. Right? Maybe that's you this morning. And um, maybe you're suffering. It could be from frustrations of the deterioration of your health. Could be the battle of um, the challenges that are affronting your mind. It could be relational suffering. It could be vocational. But regardless of the kind of suffering that we're we're all having to endure, you know, as we read God's word, God's word reads us. And when we look at what God does in suffering, it's a good reminder for us to see, you know, how have I, like the children of Israel, turned away from God? (coughs) And I don't mean that you've turned away from him necessarily like you would deny God. But how have you dethroned him? Now, I dethrone him all the time, more often than I care to admit. I dethrone him when I'm in worry and anxiousness. It's because I've dethroned him. I've put something else there and said, this is my ultimate hope. If this would just work out this way, Life would be good. How have we dethroned him? God's word reads us. And the good news is, of course, that the situations that we go through, they're not a commentary on God's love for us. The suffering that you're in, whether it is your body or your mind or relationships or vocationally, these are not commentaries on how God feels about you. The cross and the empty tomb, that's the commentary on how God feels about you. And God will, in your suffering, use it, as he, just, as he did for his children here in Israel. He'll use it to turn you to him. He'll use it to heal you. He'll use it to, to take the sliver out of your little hand so that you stop clamoring and gripping the thing that you shouldn't be gripping to, so that you could trust him, find rest in him for your soul that can be found nowhere else in some fragile little trinket and toy, this thing that's going to rust and be gone after you and I are gone. No, no, no. That our ultimate hope is in something that just doesn't fade. This is a large theme in the book of Isaiah, right, that the children are on this destructive path, and then God comes and he intercepts them. <coughs> and I know a lot about interception, because I am a Giants fan. And so, they got two wins, well, maybe a third tomorrow. God, God intercepts the trajectory of, uh, 
of the children any uh, of the children of Israel. Which leads us to the second thing. The second thing is him meeting the diagnosis of hopelessness and meeting it with deliverance. You now, when you think about when when this prophecy came, what did they do to deserve this? Nothing. What did they do to deserve the hope? Nothing. They're an utter mess. And it's in the middle of their utter mess that God promises deliverance. They, didn't, they haven't started to make a U-turn and God shouted from the heavens, I see that you are repentant. I see that you are good. I see, oh, there's a little silver lining in your heart. You're deep, deep, deep down. You're a good person after all. I'll save you. Absolutely not. No. If that's your concept of how God's work, God works, that's called works righteousness. That's called, first I help myself, God sees me helping me, and then he comes and he saves me. So he contributes, I contribute, we both contribute. Absolutely not. This is 100% sheer grace. <clears throat> and God comes and he promises deliverance. This prophecy comes when they're being marched into Babylon when they've done nothing to deserve it. When you look at verse 16, it says that God saw that there was no man and he wondered that there was absolutely nobody to intercede. And then the text gives us this. His own arm brought him salvation and righteousness upheld him. That phrase, his own arm, it's a Hebrew idiom in the Hebrew language. It's a way of saying God was his own redeemer. So it says that God is the redeemer. And of course, we know that redeemer is one of the names of Christ. They didn't meet God halfway. God came all the way. That's the picture of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. That's the image of the babe in the manger. God coming the whole way. And so, he promises that that first Christmas day, of course, is coming. That God doesn't come to help those who help themselves. He came, he came to Israel because they couldn't help themselves. He chose them to be his chosen people precisely for the reason that because they, could, they were incapable of helping themselves. Slaves in Egypt when he chose them. God's grace from beginning to end, his goodness towards us and saving us. Without doing a thing to deserve it, God promised the first Christmas day was coming. And there's a New Testament passage that sheds light on this prophecy. And we read it a couple weeks ago in our Roman study, Romans 5, which says, and you see at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for sinners. Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own care for us and his love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God meets the diagnosis of hopelessness, and he meets it with deliverance. And that's why as Christians, we use the vernacular and say, God is our ultimate hope. But what does that mean day to day in your life? That he's your ultimate hope. Here's what it means. We, as Dr. Paul Tripp would say, uh, we are hardwired for hope. We are dependent creatures. We are not the creator. We were created dependent. And so therefore, we are hardwired for hope. When you think about your life, your life is moving from one hopeful thing to the next. When you, look, when you think about all of the times when you, there was great joy in your life, those are moments when hope was realized. And when you think about dark points, if you look back through your life, you go, there's a dark point, there's a dark point, there's a dark point. It's when hope was dashed because we are hopeful creatures. You know, the birth of a child. Hope realized. At the sadness of a loss of a child touched many of the families in here today. Right? Hope dashed. Right? 
The doctor calls and says, I have good news. All of a sudden, our hope is back. We're back. The doctor calls and says, we don't know what we, I'm sorry, we, we don't know what's going on. We don't have any answers for you yet. The hope is crushed. You get the letter in the mail. Congratulations, you have been accepted to get the letter in the mail. We're sorry to inform you. You get the job. Yes. They pull you to the office. We're sorry. The economy is difficult. This particular industry is difficult, but we have to let you go. You're being fantastic. We have to let you go. Hope crushed. Romance begins. Yes. <coughs> Divorce tears our life apart. We are hopeful creatures. We are hardwired for hope. And all of us are living, all, every human is looking forward into the future and clinging to something, attaching their hope to something. And because we are not the creator, and because we are dependent on the creator, you know, as Jared, as, uh, Jared Wilson would say, uh, a Baptist theologian, he would say, the worship switch was flipped on in our hearts in the garden, and it's been on ever since. And so as hopeful creatures, we are creatures of worship. Constantly, turn, constantly turning, as you know, as singer-songwriter John Bellion would say, there's a hole in our heart, and it's stupid deep. And so God had to come into that hopelessness, and with his hope to rescue us, which is what we celebrate, the light piercing the darkness at Christmas. And we look back through the corridor, and it's not just looking backwards, church. It's again looking at the present darkness that still plagues our world today. It still touches your life and my life today. The paradox that we're tired of. Life is full of joy and pain. We're tired of the pain. Life is full of generosity and people doing loving and kind things and also horrific things. And we're tired of the horrific things. Life is full of glorious generosity and also radical self-centeredness. And we're tired of the self-centeredness. The hope of Christmas is just as Christ came in a time that looked like he was not coming. Nothing was going to fix this thing. We look forward into the future and we cascade our hope into the future as Christians. And we say, you know what? He is coming again. He will raise us to enjoy it as he restores all things. Who's going to fix this? It won't be us. You put all your hope in a little political messiah? That is a, that is a fragile hope. We need a Savior, and the Savior came, and he will come again. And in the meantime, of course, the Christian faith isn't that we just cross our fingers and say, well, one day heaven's coming, we'll just grin our teeth and bear it. It is, it is precisely that that gives us a pervasive hope so that we can stare into the darkness. We can stare into the brokenness. We can stare into the pain. We don't have to bracket it out. We can look at the wreckage in the world and the wreckage in our lives, and all of us in here have it. If you take the time to know anybody in this room, Everyone in here has wreckage, suffering, and pain. Everyone. We're, we're 100 for 100. There's nobody in this church that's wreckage-free. I haven't met any of them yet. We're 100 for 100. And it is this hope of the light of Christ that came into the darkness, who will come again, that gives light to our life, even today, enabling us to look into these things and have our souls rejuvenated by the goodness of God's grace. When you look at verse 17, <coughs> We're given an image. It's okay, there's nothing. I'm good. Susan's helping me out from the front. She's like, take a breath, son. 
I know. Don't yell. I have to. There's only one way to preach the gospel. Level nine. When you look at when you look at verse 17, it gives you this image of God putting on this helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness. That should sound familiar for some of you who've been in church for a while, right? Ephesians six, breastplate of uh, helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. But it's God putting it on. You see this beautiful image? Wow, man, this is, this is something that, the, the, that the, uh, the ancient world would have read this and would have known exactly what's going on. And they're going, okay, breastplate, helmet, wrapped in zeal, this God is preparing for war. And he is. And he says he's going to have war on all his enemies, and he, and, and, and he is. But how did this play out? How did this God, how did this king... What did it look like as the king prepared for war to liberate his people? Well, our king would go to war in a way that the world had never known, would have never understood, could have never possibly imagined. Because the kingdoms throughout world history expand by the shedding of enemy blood. But our king came to establish his kingdom and set the souls of his people free by shedding his own blood. Oh yeah, he dressed for war. But then he waged, the Father waged war on himself as, he, as, as God, the Trinity, as God comes. The Father sends the Son, the Son comes. That first Christmas day, the babe in the manger that would be the king on the cross. This is the king. That's what waging war looked like. That's where all of his zeal was headed for you and I. Every, the people on the naughty list. Well, I don't know if I like that vernacular. I don't think I'm on the naughty list. I'm a very nice person, and I've been the Christian for a long time. I'm sure you're a very nice person. But standing next to Jesus, you're bloody on the naughty list. And he came and gave his life for us. And this is what his zeal looked like. Verse 20, and a redeemer would come. And 700 years after this prophecy, he did. He came and he lived the life that we should be living, but we're not. And he came and he died the atoning death for our sin. He took on God's judgment so that we will only ever know God's grace. He rose again on the third day. He ascended to the Father and he's seated at the right hand of the Father today, ruling and reigning over his church, ruling and reigning over you and our hearts and our lives. And the expansion of his kingdom looks like hearts and, hearts and lives turning to him, which leads to the final thing. After he diagnosed us as hopeless... And then he, he meets the hopelessness with his de, the promise of de, deliverance. There's a call to turn. Now, the, of, course the, of course, the immediate application of this text was it was a call to, to those, that, that group of uh, believers, children of God that have turned from God. It was a call for them to turn back to. But the way that we look at this through the lens of the cross is that the New Testament is continually calling us to turn in various ways. <laughs> hopelessness turns to hope when we turn. We have to turn from our insufficient gods, and we have to turn to the all-sufficient God. When you look at verse 21, it says that the children of God were called to turn from their transgressions. And again, as we read God's word, it, it, God's word reads us. So where have we turned? 
Day to day, what has our trust? What do we look to? Like a small child wanting affirmation, saying, tell me that I'm loved, tell me that I'm valuable. What is it that we look to for that? Is it our popularity and our accolades? Is it the success of our business or the letters after our name? What is it, day to day, week to week, that we need to reflect back to us that we are loved and accepted and our lives are valuable and they matter? What is it? What is it, day to day and week to week, that you want to point to and go, because of that, my life has meaning? What is that? Because if that isn't Christ alone, it's too small. And you'll be wayward, as the children of God were always wayward, wrapping your life and orbiting it around some small thing that is temporal and fragile and can change. But if you will turn from that small thing and you will turn to Christ, and for those of us who've already placed our faith in Christ, I mean in a, in a, in a, in a repentant and a recalibrating way, to return to him, liberate our soul so that we're actually free, as you've heard me say many times, to enjoy everything and enjoy good things because we have not elevated any of them to the ultimate thing, where our souls can be liberated. What is that that you want to turn to just as the children of Israel did? This Redeemer, this God who dressed for war, and he came and he won the war and he defeated death by dying. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. You know, and if we turn to God who is with us, our hearts find rest in these restless times. Because there is no situation, there's no circumstance, there's nothing that can happen in your life, in your body, in your family, with relationships. There's nothing that can happen at your place of work or your industry. The field, young students in university headed into a trajectory toward a field. There's nothing that can shake or move your future and steal your joy and steal your hope because none of those things are the source of your ultimate hope. In fact, any of the shaking that happens only drives you more deeply to your source of hope, Christ alone. So may we turn to him. May we rest in him. May you, those of you who have small children, teach your children to turn to him and find their rest in him and not in these other things. Those of you who have grown children, who have turned, may this gospel minister hope and grace to your heart because look at God's relentless pursuit of wayward children he doesn't stop and so you pray and you give them into the hands of this loving God who would continually chase them down with his love and with his grace and a redeemer will come declares the Lord and this is my covenant with them my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. Amen.